So we have been in this series in Mark, and basically since the transfiguration, we have been talking about sort of from the transfiguration to the cross, there is this segment of time and space in which Jesus really begins to unpack the nature of the kingdom. And as we look at these pieces that have come together, what we can see, and by pieces I mean individual stories, parables, healings, uh, what we see is an emphasis on the least of these, on children, on those who have been ostracized, on how we examine our resources, how we think about our priorities, and what we give our time and our energy to. And through a lot of this, there is a through line of the kingdom, how we think about the kingdom in an environment where Jesus was speaking to, and I think is appropriate for us, in an environment that had really been saturated with the notion of empire, right? That the Roman Empire ruled the world at the time and influenced the thinking and the systems in which specifically the Jewish people, but those living in Palestine, um, how they engaged life. And so when Jesus came talking about the kingdom, the kingdom was in opposition to the empire. Obviously, this kicked up some dust. It created some issues. So our passage this morning is one of those funky ones. It's one that everybody looks forward to talking about. Is there marriage in heaven? Yeah. Yeah, cool, cool. So, uh, yeah, we were handing this one out. <laughs> it's not like we sit in our pastor's meetings. We're like, oh, this is my favorite. I'll do this one, right? Sort of like, hey, Jerusha, do you want to, do you feel like tackling uh, marriage in heaven? And I was like, oh, yeah. No. Like, not at all, actually. <laughs> so I dug into the passage. I looked at the scripture. And uh, I have actually really come to enjoy this passage and uh, this is what we're going to unpack this morning. But before we get into it, uh, let me pray for us. Holy God, we are so grateful for this time this morning. Even with the slightly grubby weather, we recognize that it is getting a little bit warmer, that the snow melted a little bit faster this time, and that next week is daylight savings, and there's going to be that much more sunshine in our day. And we are anticipating Easter. We are anticipating uh, the spring. And so even as we sit in this time of Lent, even as we continue through this time of examination and um, quiet, would you continue to speak to our hearts the hope and the goodness of a kingdom that is both present and to come, that is being made in us and is being made through us, and would we be present to your spirit this morning, working in us and speaking in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this passage comes from Mark 12, 18. And I'm going to read it, and then we're going to dig into it a little bit. Uh, we're going to have some fun with it. So, we start in Mark 12, verse 18. Then the Sadducees, 
who say there is no resurrection, came to him, that is Jesus, with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising, you have, not read in the, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken." Love that line. You are badly mistaken. Jesus is so gentle with those who come with their questions. Jesus is so gentle with the children, with the outcast. And here we have the Sadducees, and he gets in their faces. This statement is a getting in your face statement. So, <clears throat> as I read through, I had a lot of questions. And one of my first questions was, gosh, really, what was the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees? Like, really? We hear about them all the time, right? The, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, like, who were these guys? And what was the big deal? So I looked it up, and the Sadducees were a group who were a religious sect, and it was their job to run the temple. Now, the temple was the place where all of the exchange with God happened. According to Jewish tradition, this is where all of the sacrifices were made so that you could be made right, so that you could be made pure. So the Sadducees were really deeply invested in purity. They also didn't believe in the resurrection, which they didn't believe in resurrection of the body. They believed in something uh, called Sheol, which if you remember, David talked about, even if I go down into Sheol, there your spirit will be with me. So it was a kind of afterlife, but it was a little bit fuzzy what that afterlife looked like, and it didn't include bodily resurrection. Also, they didn't believe in angels, and they were deeply invested in legacy. Because they didn't believe in the resurrection of the body, the notion of parentage and your ancestry and who your parents were and whether they had kept the law. So that idea of purity in a very ugly kind of a way was also directly connected to, well, we are the original priest line going all the way back to Zadok and even going back to the very beginning with Aaron right? So they got to lord it over everybody, who they were, what their lineage was. So when it comes to conversation with Jesus, we see right off the bat, they call him teacher. They do not call him rabbi. Oh, you're a guy who seems to know a lot. 
we're not going to acknowledge you as rabbi. You're a good teacher. But we've, we've got some questions. So they spin a story. I looked it up, and I couldn't find any sort of documentation that identified that this was a common fable or parable. Or, so they just come up with this idea that there were seven guys, right? And according to Jewish law, if a man died without producing any heirs, then a brother was supposed to help produce heirs so that the land specific to how the land had been allocated for the children of Israel, the promised land, so that it could continue to pass to the correct people. Now, uh, we're talking about a country that at this time is completely occupied anyway. So, <clears throat> sure, but we still want to make sure that the right people are marrying the right people and having the right kids so that the land can pass to the right people. It's interesting that they come up with this idea of seven. That's not accidental. It's a way of saying, <clears throat> in an ideal scenario, nobody's done anything wrong. There are seven marriages, relationships, that produce no heirs. Seven is the number of completeness. It's the number of fullness. It's supposed to be the number associated with shalom. And so, what do you do with this, Jesus? Add the resurrection, your resurrection, the resurrection that you talk about. This poor woman, like, who she's supposed to be married to, because that's her, right, who she's married to is her identity, right? It's, like, who does she belong to? Jesus busts it all up, and I love this. When we read these passages, particularly these passages between the transfiguration and the cross, we're reading for the kingdom. I can almost imagine those who assembled the scriptures following the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, assembling these scriptures, sitting together, looking over them, passing them around the early church, and going, oh my goodness, you guys. He was talking about the king, like he was unpacking it for us. It was all right here. It's the kingdom, it's the kingdom, it's the kingdom. It is in a, a different order than the order that we are living with. It's a different reality. So when we talk about the kingdom, it's Jesus who brought the kingdom, and then it's Jesus who makes the kingdom manifest. And then the kingdom is imparted to us, go now into all the world, Right? It's imparted to us, and we now bear that seal, and we now carry the kingdom out into the world. So we're invested in the kingdom, but how is Jesus unpacking it here with this really odd scripture? There are a couple more things about the Sadducees that I think are really fascinating. One is... <clears throat> They believed in a written tradition of Scripture only. They didn't believe in any kind of oral tradition. Um, they relied heavily on the Tanakh and the law. So wisdom literature and the prophets were not a part of their tradition, which actually makes me wonder, uh, what was their concept of Messiah? 
I can't answer that. I don't know. But it made me wonder. And so I couldn't help, especially being somebody who's a little into books, a little into literature. When I read literature and I do close readings and I'm talking with students at Whitworth about what they're reading, I often am reminded how much we are a part of a post-enlightenment world. We love our facts. We love our evidence. And our belief comes after we've seen the facts, after we've seen the evidence. And we build our reality around the evidence. And I can't help but wonder how much the Sadducees erred on that side as well. That idea of, well, if I can argue it well, and they had modes of argumentation that would put our current day lawyers, no offense if you are a current day lawyer, but would probably put our current day lawyers to shame. They had systems of argumentation that were well-developed. And here they are, and they want to catch Jesus out. But Jesus knew. He knew their hearts the way he always knows our hearts. These are the guys who kept the temple. These are the guys who'd made nice with Rome. These are the guys who held power over the people. Because you had to bring sacrifices, you had to pay for those sacrifices. So you had to pay the temple to identify that this animal was clean and you could be made pure. So the same guys who are operating those sacrifices for purity are also over here setting the price for and identifying the animals that will qualify. Only these animals qualify. You have to get a qualified animal that has been made, identified as pure in order for you to be made pure. So they liked their power, they liked their legacy, they had something to protect. And as I thought about that relationship to empire and I was dwelling on this passage, I remembered a moment from this last January. My husband and I had the opportunity to go to Italy with a group from Whitworth who did a January term. And one of the most astounding parts of the trip for me was being in the, some of the oldest uh, parts of Rome, <clears throat> seeing parts of Rome that went back a couple thousand years, and being able to still identify temples. We were standing in the pouring rain, um, but being able to identify these temples and these walkways and these places where people would gather and would argue publicly and debate it was incredible. And at one point, we were walking past a large arch that had been made as a monument. The kind like, kind of like the Arc de Triomphe in, in France, but not quite that big. And people could walk around it, and you could easily drive a chariot under it. And my husband said to me, do you know what that arch is? And I said, no, <laughs> no, it's an arch. And he said, yeah, that's the one that they built to honor the general who tore down the temple in Jerusalem. The second temple that was torn down. And he brought back to Rome all of the elements from the temple. And I walked over and I thought, this is what the Sadducees were so proud of. This was their seat of power. 
and within a generation, it was all going to be torn down by an empire whose ruins I was standing and looking at. And it was a sobering moment. It made me think about how secure I am in the country and system of democracy in which I live and how these things pass away. And here Jesus is talking about a kingdom that does not. Why did they ask about marriage in heaven when they didn't believe in an afterlife? Jesus answers them from the rabbinical tradition. He sees what they're doing. He recognizes their hearts. And he recognizes really quickly, folks, this isn't about marriage at all. So let's just go ahead and identify that for what it is. It's not about marriage. Right? That's just a distraction. You guys... Uh, did you guys ever read The Hunger Games or see the movies? There was an interesting interview with Jennifer Lawrence following those films. And she said at one point, everybody wants to know about Katniss Everdeen and Peter Malark. How in love are they? When did they fall in love? She said, everybody misses the point of the story. This is about fighting injustice. It was the capital that was really invested in keeping everybody distracted by talking about how in love they were. She said, I think it's really problematic that that's all we want to talk about because this movie is about injustice and fighting injustice. And I thought about that when I thought about this. It's the whole thing is like a little bit of a like, uh, let's talk about marriage in this poor lady who belongs to this man, and then this man, and then this man, and then this man. And then in the resurrection, I mean, who, who does she belong to? Jesus says, yeah. No, not any of them. They're going to be just like angels, which you don't believe in. So don't worry about it. Right? But what's he getting at? What do we think he means here? Jesus is identifying that in the kingdom... There's no need for marriage. In the kingdom, we're connected by the Holy Spirit as a legacy of the faithful. Full stop. This isn't about who begot who, begot who, begot who. Jesus knew about that because his family line had been confirmed through both of his parents his adoptive father, and his biological mother. He knew about legacy. He knew how important it was to everybody. And he also knew how problematic it could be. Why? Because he was trying to reinforce a concept of relationship that was going to blow everybody's mind. You and I, through Jesus Christ, would become the adopted children of God, heirs of the kingdom and co-heirs with Christ. He is referred to as our brother. There was no way to set that up without just busting apart the notion that legacy as you hold it so dear is about to be absolutely wiped out. 
this notion of marriage and who belongs to who belongs. No, there will now no longer be male or female. There will now no longer be an idea of you've got to marry the right person to produce the right kids to make sure that your line goes on. No, we are now all in Christ. Now, is marriage abolished? No. There's still a covenantal concept of marriage before God. But the use of marriage as a way of maintaining a legacy was going to be completely obliterated. The use of marriage as a way of holding it over other people, oh, but we are of this line, and so we have more power because we're actually better than you. Nope. That was going to be wiped out. And so he identifies to them that there won't be any need for marriage in heaven because people are going to be a thing that actually you don't even believe in. You can't even conceive of. And so what does this mean for us? I think that it means that when we recognize who we are in the kingdom because of Jesus, we begin to take hold of that identity. But man, oh man, there's some stuff to untangle. There are systems and ideas that we have in our heads that we would kind of like to keep yeah, but there's this legacy, and this is who my grandfather was, and, right? And we want to maintain a notion of our sense of belonging because this is what we are really comfortable with, and we can be reassured because this is what the birth certificate says. And Jesus says, you're in me. I am your belonging. I belong to you. You belong to me. And now we are family. And the legacy of believers is a legacy of the faithful who have handed that on, whether they have married, whether they have had children, or not. That what they are handing on is the legacy of their faithfulness as the body of Christ. What Jesus addresses to them is going right back to the very beginning. In the burning bush, when God speaks to Moses, this is the call. This is the call that is the spark that lights the beginning of what is the children of Israel. So he's going back to the very beginning. The Sadducees are like, ooh, this is, the, this is right at the start. And Jesus says, God at the burning bush said, I am. I am that I am. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Not, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob when they were living, but they're dead now. 
He says, no, I am their God now. And as I researched this, there are two takes on this, and I think both are beautiful. One is the idea that literally they are still alive or are in a place of waiting for resurrection. And two, that they had received by faith what was becoming, what was being made. When we look at Hebrews 11, we see a list of men and women who received by faith the kingdom that was coming. And that that faith identified, I am their God. They belong to this kingdom even before it had been made manifest. They anticipated Jesus, even though they never got to meet him. I think it is a beautiful promise for us that Jesus, even as he approaches the cross, reinforces to the Sadducees, the keeper of the law, that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. When we hold to our old systems, when we hold to our old reality, we try to make it work, even as we are entering into deeper and deeper relationship with Jesus, a deeper and deeper understanding of the kingdom. If we try to hold on to those old systems, every once in a while we're going to run into a, you are quite wrong. And that's okay. The answer to that is, how do I make it right? We can't in of ourselves. But what we see here is the legacy of empire always ends, and it ends in death. The empires that have said over and over again, we are so powerful, we will, in, we will destroy the indigenous, we will take their children, we will take this land, and it will be ours, and we will place our legacy here. They've all passed away. Those empires pass away. It is actually very often among the indigenous and in the indigenous community that we are reminded of what a true legacy can really look like. That it includes the care of creation. I was reading an essay by uh, an indigenous woman here in the United States, and she wrote... It is the most powerful thing when genocide has been a pra practiced against your people to dream of having children, to raise those children in the culture that was taken from you and your grandmother, and to remind them of who they are. And I thought, oh, we get so hung up on the individualism of empire 
that we forget that we are part of a legacy of the faithful. So as I was wrapping up the sermon this week, I'm sitting in our playroom and my son is watching Moana, which I love. And as I'm thinking through these concepts, particularly how individualism can really eat away, um, how we are told over and over again, you have to figure it out, how we rely so heavily on our understanding, and it's hard to give up the elements of empire that we have been born into, to not worry about our legacy. We're getting towards the end of Moana, and this scene pops up, and I started crying. I often cry during Moana anyway, but I started crying because I was reminded in the beauty of this scene about, well, I was reminded of the legacy of the faithful and the cloud of witnesses who are alive and that we are not in this as individuals alone. So I'm going to share this scene with us. The reef. Grandma? Guess I chose the right tattoo. Grandma! <sighs> I tried, Grandma. I... I couldn't do it. It's not your fault. I never should have put so much on your shoulders. If you are ready to go home, I will be with you. Why do you hesitate? I don't know. I know a girl from an island. She stands apart from the crowd. She loves the sea and her people. She makes her whole family proud. Sometimes the world seems against you. The journey may leave a scar. But scars can heal and reveal just where you are. The people you love will change you. The things you have learned will guide you And nothing on earth can silence The quiet voice still inside you And when that voice starts to whisper Moana, you've come so far Moana, listen Do you know who you are? Who am I? I am a girl who loves my island and the girl who loves the sea. It calls me. I am the daughter of the village chief. We are descended from voyagers who found their way across the world. They call me. I've delivered us to where we are. I have journeyed further 
since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, shunning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. We are a moment in the legacy of the faithful. We are not yet the last generation. Let us remember that our eternity is set and not based in anything that we have done. That empires will pass away, but we are inheriting a kingdom that cannot and will not be destroyed. Let us remember that the contracts of this earth pass away, but the investment of loving and caring is designed to last for all of eternity. That those that we have loved deeply or those we have just smiled at by way of encouragement as we pass by them, that these things will last into eternity. We are the orphans of empire who are unlearning isolated religion and remembering our true selves as the legacy of the faithful and the children of the kingdom. May it be so. Amen.